There's a basic rule that applies to a lot of sports or activities, which is simply this. Look where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. Other people will say something along the lines of, where the head goes, the body will follow. For example, let's say you're out skiing and you need to ski in between a small gap between two trees. A ski instructor will tell you that you need to look at the space between the trees, not at the trees themselves. Because if you look at the trees, you're going to run into them. You need to be aware of the trees in your peripheral vision, of course, but you have to place your eyesight or your line of vision between the two trees. The same thing on a bicycle. I remember when I was in elementary school, every summer or every spring, we would host a bike rodeo. We would have these contests to see who could steer their bike the fastest around pylons and obstacles and that sort of thing. One of the other contests was trying to ride your bike in a straight line. They had these two parallel lines spray painted on the parking lot about six or eight inches apart. And the two lines were about 30 or 40 yards long. All you had to do was keep your wheels between the lines and whoever made it to the end, or at least the farthest along the line, won. It seemed easy enough, but nobody could do it. Every year I would try it, concentrating all of my energy on going straight as carefully as I could, with a death grip on the handlebars trying to hold the wheel steady. And I was pedaling slowly and methodically, looking down over the handlebars, trying to prevent my wheels from veering outside of the lines. And I would get maybe five feet before I went out of bounds as did everyone else. Maybe the person who took the prize got eight or 10 feet or so. No one got anywhere near the end of the parallel lines. It was frustrating because in principle, it seemed so simple. Just ride your bike in a straight line. Then finally in the fifth grade, one of my classmates figured out how to do it. He started back about 10 or 20 yards from the beginning of the two parallel lines and he got up ahead of steam going as fast as he could. He aimed his tires between the lines, and he kept his head up the whole way looking at the end point rather than the two lines. And he just glided right on down the whole 30 or 40 yards, perfectly straight, letting his momentum do the work. That guy knew something that St. Peter didn't. Look where you want to go, not where you don't want to go. Peter could walk on the water when he concentrated on Jesus, but the second he started paying more attention to the winds, he began to sink. And it doesn't make sense because he's already walking on the water. If Jesus is going to give him the grace to walk on the Sea of Galilee, of course Jesus is also going to protect him from the storm. Did Peter really think that Jesus brought him to walk on the water and then was going to let him get carried away by the wind? But often we think like Peter as well. We don't always see God's all-encompassing benevolence towards us. So even when people are aware of or believe in the grace of God in some respects, they often imagine that it is arbitrarily limited in other respects, perhaps because they're always thinking of their sins. But we have to keep our eyes on what God wants for us, to focus on who we are and who we are meant to be. That means being aware of the reality of sin in our lives, of course, but it also means not letting ourselves be defined by it. 
The danger is that for some of us, we can begin to believe that God only speaks to us through our sins, that he only sees us as our sins, that our relationship to Christ is primarily defined by those times when we have disappointed him. But like Jesus in today's gospel, when he tells Peter, O ye of little faith, he still reaches out his arm in order to save him. We see this in the life of the people of Israel, our forefathers in the faith. It is why St. Paul writes, they are Israelites. There's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. There's the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is over all. St. Paul would not have put this in the New Testament if it wasn't supposed to mean something important for us as Christians. Israel had the first covenant with God, and we have to remember that they broke it in every way possible. Yet they were still God's chosen ones, and he still continued to reveal himself to the world through them, even bringing Christ into the world through the house of David. This should teach us to see how loving God is. The most amazing thing about the God of the scriptures is how merciful he was to Israel and how merciful he continues to be to us. The key to understanding this, I think, goes back to the idea that we must look where we want to go. We want to go to God, of course. That doesn't mean ignoring everything else, but we do need to see everything in this world in the light of the world that we are meant for, which is God's kingdom. That's the thing that Israel understood, at least in her better moments. We see this in Elijah in the first reading. He saw that the winds which could level a mountain were not the Lord, nor was an earthquake or a fire. These are all aspects of the natural world that God created. They might even at times be instruments of his action in this world. But these things are not God. That's what made the religion of Israel different from the religion of all the other nations. Other religions were typically animistic or pantheistic. God, or more typically gods, were things in the world. That's why other cultures around Israel would drink the blood of animals. Their gods were often in the animals, and so men consumed the blood of animals in order to gain animalistic powers, which made them, in their view, more divine. But this is totally backwards from the truth. God is the transcendent creator of the universe, and it's human beings who are in his image and likeness. It's not animalistic powers that we should be seeking, but rather the virtues that highlight our connection to the divine nature, love, justice, mercy, forgiveness, and understanding. That's why our Eucharistic sacrifice is unique. We offer bread and wine, and through them, Christ comes to us in these same species. Not because God is in wheat or grapes, but because God is the transcendent creator of the universe, who by love proportions himself to the human experience, who has promised to reveal himself in the Eucharist and does every time we offer the Mass. He comes into our world not as an earthquake or as a fire, but as a tiny whispering sound saying, this is my body which is given for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.